Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. Folks, this is the Gamers with Glasses show, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website GamersWithGlasses.com. Gamers with Glasses is your gathering place for fans, scholars, artists, and developers who like to play and think about games. Today, I'm joined by Roger Whitson. Hi there. And Nate Schmidt. Hello, hello. And this is our sixth episode. This week, we'll be discussing the games we've been playing like usual, and our special topic is mental health and gaming. This came out of a series of articles we published on the website, The Shortest Day, The Longest Night, edited by Toph Eklund and Ed Chang. The articles discuss how we use games to reflect on and cope with the doldrums of winter, how games affect our mental health, and much more. I also just wanted to say that we've got some great other content uh, coming up and already in our podcast feed. So in addition to the GWG show, you can also find an interview we just did with the Denmark-based uh, indie developer Triple Topping, who made a great game called Welcome to Elk. Uh, you'll also be able to find soon enough a spin-off podcast called The Dark Souls Corner, where a couple of sage players tutor a couple of newbies uh, with a kind, uh, loving hand, um, <laughs> an occasional, an occasional heckling, uh, uh, and, and only a short, you know, dose of, uh, sadism and masochism. Uh, so we hope you'll enjoy that content too, but why don't we start off the way we always start off, which is with the games we're playing and Nate, why don't you begin with, no Players Online, which I'm going to assume is actually the name of the game. Yeah, I kind of wondered if that was going to be um, going to be confusing. But, yeah, so I kind of um, got into this because there I, I discovered this sort of subgenre of games that are sort of take place in a haunted version of the PlayStation one console. Um, because I'm obsessed with this idea of, um, of a media hauntings, right? Like there are all these great stories about haunted books and haunted libraries and sort of, um, other than that really sensationalized slender man documentary, even though it's an interesting story, like, there's creepy pasta, you know, and and there's some good stuff in there, but I want more stories about haunted games. Like I want more stories about haunted media content that's more interesting than um just like 
books and stuff. Like, why don't we have more ghost computers? And I know they're out there, but, and maybe I just haven't encountered enough and I'd love to hear recommendations, but there's this whole kind of subgenre of games that basically, um, a lot of them are made in unity and they kind of take unity assets and, are able to lay them over really effectively so that in the best ones, it really looks like a maybe a PlayStation 1 game that you might have missed, right? That you might not have done. Um, and this one in particular, uh, this is one of the ones I have to think about how to describe it before I give too much away. So it's a horror game, right? And you click to start it and it opens this sort of faux DOS box, so which is a little bit anachronistic because the rest of it does kind of look more PS1 than DOS, but it opens through this faux DOS box. And um, you join a server, an empty server, to ostensibly play this first-person shooter, um, and there's no one there. There's no one there. And you can just run across the map and grab the flag and then run back. But as you come back, things start appearing. Like little things. And, and it's so subtle, you almost miss it. But like little figures on the edges of the screen and parts of the map you don't even need to go to. You'll sort of like, wait, did I? Was there something? You know, it'll sort of look like there's something there. And then music, there's a part where... Um, a record player appears and music starts to play that's different from the music that you've been hearing in the rest of the game. And um, what eventually starts happening is there are points where you'll get to as you grab the flags and go back and forth where you'll freeze, you'll be stuck, and your gun jams and doesn't work anymore as this sort of apparition will appear and like freeze you and get closer and closer and closer to you and then disappear. Oh my gosh. You know, again. Oh my gosh. But I am never playing this game. It's so good. It's really it's and it's really interesting because um I would consider it to be genuinely scary. And I think some of its retroness is actually part of what makes it scary because it's easier to play, kind of play on Candy Valley. But anyway, what happens is um, as you're approaching the um, the arena with the last flag, if you're choosing to bring the flags back and forth, a chat box pops up and starts talking to you and begging you not to finish the game. And, and you can't talk back to it, but it sort of will ask for you to like shoot your gun in the air if you can hear it and this kind of thing. Um, and it's this, this guy who's sort of like, I don't know how you got on the server. I don't know how you found this game, but please don't finish it because, and then I'm not going to spoil the bad thing that's going to happen if you finish it. Um, but so it's this really just like breaks the third wall and then some kind of uh, um, play of the uncanny. But then, and this is the part where I have to really be careful with what I, what I give away about this game. But sort of you go through that narrative arc, you find out why he doesn't want you to finish the last flag. You either listen to the mysterious voice and quit the game or you don't. Different scary things happen regardless. But there's a second version that was actually released as an ARG last year. 
November of last year. And there are all these different little codes and things that you can do. One of them, I'll give this away because it's really not that hard to figure out. One of them is the Konami um, code, the famous up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, that if you put it in at startup, reveal these different parts of the game. And there's this sort of almost separate um, part of the different places on the internet where you start finding little pieces of this developer who is ostensibly the voice that interrupts your first play through the game and and is the one that's begging you not to stop playing. And you start to find other rooms. There's a, a, a band camp page that has like Morse code that plays that's under the developer's name. Um, and, and anyway, so they really put a lot of work into this ARG, you know, and, and it's really cool because the whole game experience itself, just playing it takes maybe 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes to sort of go through it. Um, but then you start finding like, there's a separate hidden itch.io page, not for the real developer who made no players online, but for the made up developer who's begging you not to finish no players online with a separate game on it that if you download it and play it tells you how to access other secret stuff in the original game. So it's, it gets way more convoluted and complicated than I thought it was going to be. Um, I thought I was gearing up for just like, oh, this will be retro and scary. And it was. And it scared the pants off of me the first time I did it. But then it got bigger. And now I'm not entirely sure that my computer isn't actually haunted by it. Like, like I'm not completely sure that I stopped playing the game. Is <laughs> Because that's kind of what ARGs do. But it, and it's And it's a free download. So if you just want to spend an afternoon basically being in your house and figuring out kind of a horror theme escape room just on your computer, like without having to go anywhere. I got way into it and it was really fun. So, um, but don't look up too much about it. Um, don't even read the itch.io comments on it unless you want to get some puzzles uh, spoiled. Yeah. This makes me think of uh, things like Doki Doki uh, literature club and, you know, the sort of sea of games that kind of turn your computer itself uh, and your file system into a kind of playground, uh, often a horrifying playground. Uh, it's always scary, the... right? Isn't that interesting? It's almost always horror games that do this. Well, it's, it's because, right, like our entire sort of model of media is about noise reduction and about like interface minimalism, right? It's all about making the interface as transparent as narrow as clean as possible right this is why by the way people hate the ps5 design so much just because it's reminded us that there's a machine there um a big gaudy white one uh, <laughs> but no but it's like the film the ring right like yeah. part of why the ring's so horrifying is because back when it came out the japanese and the english version people still had vcrs and they were becoming these unwieldy things that were still stuck in our living rooms uh, and you don't want to think about them just as like, you know, the ideal play experience is to think as little as possible about the machine you're running this thing on. Yeah. And I think that's uh, part of it is kind of the, uh, I think that's part of what makes it effective as this kind of DOS slash PS1 kind of hybrid thing. Like the fact that it's something that you would be used to being a little glitchy, right? I, wasn't there somebody we were talking to who was talking about, um, 
just being terrified by Elder Scrolls Morrowind a couple times. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was terrified yeah. by uh, Daggerfall. Daggerfall. That's Daggerfall. right, Daggerfall. Yeah, Morrowind was, 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 was a separate one that actually worked a lot better. Daggerfall is the one I'm thinking about. Um, yeah, where where the the glitches... Anyway, I believe that these games are retro because the glitches are believable and they bring back that freaky feeling of being reminded that there's a machine there and that maybe you have broken it. Yeah. I would admit that I feel like the closest experience I've had to that recently, though I definitely want to play No Players Online, uh, is the moment where I think I was fighting a boss or maybe it was just a combat arena in Spider-Man Miles Morales where I fell outside of the world oh, and wow. into this and just started like falling into an endless skybox but i became a brick which is apparently not an uncommon error to just like literally become this like human-sized brick and just keep falling uh, and I had to, <laughs> like quit you know the app uh but just yeah that sense of like disorientation because the system itself has become sort of invaded by outside forces as it were i like the idea of an arg though um, yeah no it was good. and i mean sort of it's a you always feel a little bit um late to the party getting playing an arg that technically like everybody figured out you know four or five months ago but there are also artificial ways to just kind of shield yourself from from the things that other people but i also uh, before this just you know we start uh this just becomes the the Gamers with Glasses glitch cast. I did want to say I learned about a really funny new glitch today that I didn't know. And this was going to be the podcast when I didn't talk about Skyrim, but I'm going to talk about Skyrim uh, now. <laughs> There's a part, I was watching this uh, no-clip YouTube documentary about Bethesda, and there's a part where they accidentally made a knife and fork um, usable items that you could pick up and, and, and fight people with mm. and you could enchant them the same way you can enchant other items. So you can like be decimating stuff with this knife and fork. But what would happen is if you saved your game with the knife and fork equipped, you would respawn as a plate. <laughs> you would respawn. Would you... We, you you wouldn't even have a character anymore. You would just be floating above whatever the nearest table setting was to the last place that you saved. And if could you like do anything? No, you could, could you sort of around? you could still rotate the camera, but because you were <laughs> because you're no longer an attribute of the game that moves. You couldn't move. You were just oh there at the place sitting, looking down at the you know leaks or whatever. And I love that. Okay, sorry. This has been the Gamers with Glasses glitch digression. Um, <laughs> no, this makes me think of... So I'm getting ready to review a book on Todd Howard for the website that I just finished up. And there's a moment uh, where they're talking about the early NPC non-player character AI uh, for Oblivion, which is where they sort of perfected, I think it's called the radial system. And initially it was so detailed and complex though, that it was breaking not just the overall main quest, but also the side quests. And they kept on trying to shore it up, but the NPCs were deciding to do just things that were basically taking over the game world. I mean, this was sort of like... <laughs> you know, a real world virtual version of Westworld, uh, oh my gosh. you know, NPCs revolting against the logic of the game uh, to the point where I, I would love somebody, I would love them to just like 
you know, Bethesda to set aside a team to perfect that NPCS system, but get rid of any player character and just offer <laughs> yes. a mode where you can, like a dev kit mode, where you can talk to like the like just watch the npcs and like type in an npc name and say like i want to observe this npc's route through the world um which maybe is a way of transitioning into the the first game i want to talk about uh which is i just want to do a brief update on yakuza like a dragon which i sort of babbled about a little bit last time i'm still i think in the first half of the game uh i uh, now have a full party. This is essentially like Yakuza, which is a sort of three beat em up, has been turned more or less into a JRPG uh, where the combat is turn based. And now I have a full party, so I have a four person party. Uh, and just to give a sense of what kind of JRPG this is, the classes that I'm rocking are uh, so my main character, Ichiban's class, was. Yakuza and now is just hero because he's a huge Dragon Quest fan and so he likes to imagine that he's aging in Dragon Quest. Uh, my character Adachi uh, is a former police officer so his class is just detective or ex-detective. Nanba is a former nurse but his but he like basically like got in trouble and became homeless and so his class is homeless guy. And he's your black mage, and this like he's the one with the area uh, of effect attacks and things like that. Uh, and then I have Psycho, who is a hostess bar mama, basically meaning she's like running, not quite like a sex work place, although sex work does figure into the game uh, quite prominently, but more or less. And she's like sort of the woman who's helping make sure all of the hostesses at this bar who are flirting with men and sometimes going home with them are like doing their jobs uh but also getting emotional support uh and she starts off as a quote-unquote barmaid uh, as her class and now i transitioned to her to idol like a japanese idol uh, and she does like these like pop song routines <laughs> to like debuff the enemies and buff my uh party um but you know the combat gets more complex when you have a full party and you can sort of riff on people i think one of the things that speaks a lot to the game and that makes it resemble a game like persona is that you have these like uh intra-party interactions like your party members interacting with one another that establishes a greater bond and if they have a greater bond then like you beat down an enemy if the other uh person in your party is nearby they'll like strike the enemy right after you finish striking the enemy uh, <laughs> which means it sort of rewards you to have these conversations with your party at bars and just kind of go through or play it or like do karaoke at bars with them nice um it's a lot of fun um, do you have to sing in the game yeah which is of course button presses like pretty standard uh thing but do like you really... sing do you christian haynes sing along uh, my Japanese is not that good. Oh, um, which is the so same oh give me a break. Yeah, I am a poser. Yeah. I know. Okay, I see. I when see. I make him a real JRPG nerd, I'll start learning Japanese. <laughs> um, which, can I tell you, just I have multiple students that I'm teaching right now who are learning Japanese because they got really into JRPGs. Oh, interesting. Um, so it seems huh. like a real... And I know like our old college friend, uh, Brian, 
did the same thing, Roger. Oh, um, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so this is the thing that happens. Um, huh. But, you know, this is a game that's really about just combinations of humor and raw emotion. You have to be okay with some lewd humor. But it's also a game that, like, humanizes homeless people in a way that a lot of games don't. Uh, that even if it does make a joke out of a certain class of people, only does it as a segue into making you sort of feel bad about jo that joke, but without moralizing, with saying, yeah, there's a humor there, but at the same time, we need to think about what these people sort of go through. So it's a game about, like, you have a person that does manage uh, Soapland, which essentially is a, you know, Japanese brothel, uh, and which were gray market, but part of the plot of the game uh, is surrounds, revolves on this campaign to get rid of soap plants, to get rid of prostitution by uh, sort of a, a kind of moralistic protest campaign called Bleach Japan. <laughs> um, and you're, of course, they're the bad guys, right? So this is a game that's like anti-moralism. It's like the most Nietzschean game I've played in a certain sense. We're trying to move beyond good and evil and be more about just like people connecting with one another. And so I really love that. It's got great characters. I think I've got another 20 to 30 hours at least cool. with the game and I'm not slowing down. Like it's a, it's a real comfort food sort of game at this point. Mm. Nice. So, so yeah, Roger, why don't you talk about one of your games before I go into another one of mine? Yeah. Well, I just have, so the games that I'm talking about today are just ones that I've, you know, started. And so I haven't gotten a lot into them, but first one is a uh, red out space assault which is a um which is a space shooter and um i have always been a huge fan of space shooters ever since i played galaga right like um and uh you know like star fox and and, and those types of 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 games and uh red out space assault advertises itself as a next gen space shooter um and i guess um, I don't know, like I haven't gotten a lot into it, so there may be aspects of it that I'm not aware of yet, but I, I'm not sure that I would yet call it a next gen space shooter. It's a very good space shooter. Um, and there are, there are, maybe it's next gen in the sense that there are, uh, opportunities for you to level up different parts of your spaceship. Like you can get better, uh, guns or better weapons or better hulls or, or things like that. Um, but it's very much sort of like, fly around, shoot things. Um, and, and it's just a really fun kind of light game, um, that I've, I've been playing a bit of in the past few days. Um, and it has a great selling point, $10. It's $10 <laughs> 3d space shooter. Pretty awesome. Uh, so I, I read out space assault. I've been, I've been enjoying that one. So Christian, do you want to go to the other one? Sure. Um, okay. so I am, also playing you know actually let me talk about really quickly about a game that i'm not sure if i enjoyed which is pendragon which mm. is the most recent game from inkle studios who made uh, 80 days uh sorcerer um uh, heaven's vault and a number of other games uh and they have a scripting language uh coding language that they created uh that i want to talk about for a moment which i'm actually almost more interested in than the game itself that i played so pendragon is like arthurian legend it has a really nice kind of almost stained glass window quality to the graphics, very storybook. I actually played uh, my first run of it uh, holding uh, 
my 18 month old um, so that she could watch because it's not very violent and um, she just enjoyed the storybook style quality. It has a great soundtrack, very much what you'd imagine from like, you know, if you produced a game out of something like Once in Future King by T.H. White. Uh, and it's essentially like a combination choose your own adventure narrative and tactics game. Right. And we all know at this point probably that I really like tactics games. I re, you know, I review them, write about them for the site and stuff. Uh, and I love them. Uh, I will say I, I found the tactics to side of this to simultaneously be too simple and too obtuse. Like it's not explained extremely well. It seems unnecessarily complicated in terms of its movement, but then it doesn't give you much by way of options in terms of either attacking or defending or other kinds of things. And so that I felt a little disappointed by. That being said, what the game does excel at is that choose your own adventure style. So as you're going and sort of going through the world, what you're going to do is like, you know, in the first playthrough, I played as Guinevere and I could pick between Guinevere and Lancelot. I picked Guinevere and I went through and I picked up and recruited some folks, including Lancelot along the way. And each person I recruited, I started having more and more interactions with. And I could choose different dialogue for both members of the dialogue, for both like the people I picked up and for Guinevere. And, uh, you know, you could tell it was branching out in a really complex way. And I ended up losing the final battle in my first run, which was only like an hour long. Uh, and you, and it's certainly made to be replayed. You can open up new characters. You can start as Arthur at some point, I think. And so this is, you know, different branches, different locations you can go to. Uh, but it really did have that quality of having st somebody tell you a story while letting you have just a little bit of input in the best way, right? You could feel it branching. You could feel that air of mystery. You could feel a kind of rich world that surrounded you. And it really was like, this is a turning point where Mordred, if you're familiar with Arthurian saga, where Mordred is really ascendant uh, and Arthur is on his heels, you know? And so it, it was okay. Like it wasn't my favorite game in the world, but I love the aesthetic. I love the storytelling style. I didn't love the tactics part, which is really, you, I think you have to like to love the game. Uh, but all of this is made with this script called uh, the ink script that Inkle produces, and they made a lot of their games with. And it's middleware, so you can integrate it into other game engines like Unity. And it's open source, entirely accessible, so you could go and tinker around with it uh, and write stories in it really easily. And then if you wanted to integrate it, if you have more sort of programming knowledge or working with somebody who has more programming knowledge, you could you know, start off by writing the story, build out code from there, and eventually work that into something like a 2D or 3D uh, engine um, game. Um, and that's really fascinating to me. And I love that accessibility. Last GWG show, we were really, you know, talking about indie games. And it strikes me that this is, you know, this is a good sort of ethics and politics to like game dev and like, you know, keeping your tools open to the public and encouraging them to make games as well as play them. So. Cool. Yeah, that kind um, of um, that yeah. kind of Anna Anthropy sort of style of of the video game scenester, right? Of of that games are are for the masses, not just to consume, but to but to make and express yourself with. That's cool. Sorry, Roger. I think I maybe cut you off there. Where were oh, you? Oh no, that's okay. That's okay. I just the other one I wanted to talk about really, really briefly is uh, Cyber Shadow. 
um, which is I I've only gotten through about uh, I would say the first two levels of it, and it's a pretty good so far. It's a pretty good mix of Ninja Gaiden. It's like a pixel eight uh, bit uh, game, um, Ninja Gaiden and Contra. Um, I think there's probably a little bit of of Castlevania in it in there too. Um, I never played the Messenger. Um, so I'm, I don't know about that game, but you know, this one's a, so far it's pretty solid, pretty solid Ninja Gaiden kind of thing. Um, the other game I, I, it reminded me a bit of, although now that I'm remembering it, it's a little different is actually Katana Zero from a couple of, of, of years ago. Um, I haven't yet seen right now. I don't think I'm, I'm into the game enough to, to fully appreciate um how it's riffing off of of ninja gaiden for instance katana zero did things with like you would take these drugs and it would make you uh super powerful you could slow down time or whatever but it also had insta death so that's not really what uh cyber shadow has but um so far it's i've been enjoying it pretty well um again another cheap uh game indie game uh seems pretty solid so um if if it gets I, I'm looking forward to getting into it uh, in, in more depth. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I've heard that that game has really cool upgrades from just a couple of reviews I read. And I know Blake uh, Reno for our site is going to be writing about it, is in the process of writing about it right now. You know, the last thing I want to talk about, I don't want to talk much about it because I think we're going to have an article come out about it tomorrow that I wrote. <laughs> uh, so you see some of my thoughts about it um, tomorrow or the next day. Uh, but it's the Hitman uh, World of Assassination trilogy. I've been playing Hitman 3, but I've also been going back and playing Hitman, the 2016 version, uh, Hitman 2, which I think was 2018, uh, some Hitman Blood Money and Hitman Absolution, just because I have them all on current-gen systems, um, easily accessible. Uh, and I don't like playing Hitman on PC very much, to be quite honest, because uh, I'm lazy and I don't like hooking my controller up to my PC. <laughs> uh, but... They're great games, uh, and they're games that, you know, they're murder, murder puzzles, you know, uh, that simultaneously require you to, you know, go after a target in a creative way, uh, but also give you room to experiment, right? And so, you know, for example, uh, in the Dubai level in Hitman 3 that I played for the first time this week, uh, you know, you parachute in. You can see that IO Interactive, the studio that made this, is showing their chops for the James Bond game that they're in the process of making, actually. They just got the James Bond license. Um, so you parachute into the highest uh, skyscraper in Dubai, uh, and you land on, like, a ledge, and then you sort of sneak in. And then you have all these different options to kill these people. I did the easy option of, like, rerouting... Uh, the two targets by changing their personal calendars in the server room so that they ended up in the, you know, suite, this specific penthouse suite at the same time. And then I took them out with a chef's knife. Uh, <laughs> but there also, I realized, was the option to kill them with an installation art piece that you can also experience, oh. Oh. which I will be going back to do. Nice. <laughs> uh, they also did an entire, like, clearly based on... Uh, knives out level where you if you're quick can impersonate a detective that's hired to investigate the murder of a family member 
and you go and you interview all the different NPCs and you're like trying to sleuth around and figure out who did the you know murder and you can get this information if you figure it out that helps with the overall story arc in the game and you know I guess the only thing I really want to say about this is I would encourage people who maybe aren't into like shooters or aren't into violent games to maybe give the recent trilogy a try probably jump in at 2016 the 2016 hitman um and just see if you like that paris level you can get it for cheap at some point uh but a paris level it's like a level where you can pretend to be a runway model <laughs> and use pretending to be a runway model to take out target and these aren't i mean they're violent games but not really actually they're like of all the games i play that's probably the least violent because the violence might only last 30 seconds the rest of the time you're overhearing npcs you're like you know, listening in the conversations you shouldn't be, you're figuring out where you're going to go, how to get from point A to point B um, in a stealthy way. And they're just a lot of fun. And they really do have the most intricate level design. They're miniature open worlds, basically. Uh, and they're just beautiful in terms of their combination of brevity and complexity. Um, and I guess the last thing I will say is for those of you who may be kept up with Hitman games uh, to the point where they got really sleazy, with the advertising campaign for Hitman Absolution in particular, where they produced an app uh, that encouraged you to take out hits on your friends, um, like fake hits, but your friends didn't know that when the app contacted them, um, and really horrible misogynistic language and other things, that is basically gone. Like that's since Hitman 2016, they took a step back from those aspects of the game and really leaned into both the more serious and the more lighthearted stuff at the same time, right? Sort of getting rid of that middle ground of just like cheap humor for the most part. So yeah, I think we should transition to our special topic, which is video games and mental health. And I'll just say, you know, like I said earlier, this really kind of spun out of a series of articles that we did called The Shortest Day, The Longest Night that was edited by our site contributors and editors. Uh, Toph Eklund and Ed Chang, and, uh, you know, all three of us, I want to say, wrote articles for it. Uh, Nate, you wrote an article on Skyrim. Roger, you wrote an article on the company of cats in video games and in real life. And then I wrote an article on Mourning and uh, the game What Remains of Edith Finch. So maybe we could start off just by talking a little bit about the articles we wrote, what brought us to write them, why we might think of those in terms of mental health and video games. Maybe, Nate, do you want to start us off? Oh, no. But then I'm going to be talking yeah. about Skyrim. <laughs> but I, and I was – we – oh, it's the podcast again. And I at some point I'm just going to throw in the towel and, and say that, like – It's just – you're just the Skyrim it's person. It's just Skyrim. I want to write about video games and be a good video game journalist. But on the podcast, all I do is talk about Skyrim. But – I mean, it, it, it is. There's always that guy. <laughs> there is, yeah. There's always that guy. I just say, I'm a, I'm a sucker for an open world. Uh, but uh, when did that game first come out? By the way, what, how how old is it? I think it? it's 2012. <laughs> Long time really? ago. I thought it was like 20 years old. Or no, it's not. I'm I'm being no. hyperbolic. But it seems like it's been out forever. No, like it's just no. More when I played old. it. I feel like I played it in like 2014 and it felt old when I played it. November 2011. 
2011, crap. Man, okay, well, that's the game I'm playing, and I have something cool to say about it, so shut up and listen. Um, the, no, it's, I just, the thing is, so I, I've, um, I got into these open world fantasy games because I missed my tabletop RPG group, um, which actually, uh, I, I don't remember if this made it into the final cut of the article or not, but something that dawned on me while I was writing about it, I'm pretty sure that was the last group of people I was with last year. And therefore the last group of people I have been with for however many months it's been now. A year. Yeah. A year. Yeah. Pretty much. Because I remember, I guess it's a year and because we didn't go. My girlfriend and I didn't go to the bar that everybody normally goes to on Wednesdays, sort of a week before everything shut down, because we were like, eh, this seems like, mm, like maybe not a good idea. So we weren't at that, which would mean that Pathfinder night was the last time I was with a, a group of more than like her and my son um, physically, which is interesting to think about. So anyway, um, it took us a long time to transition to Roll20. And during that time, what I started doing was playing these these Bethesda open world fantasy games. Um, I started with Oblivion because I hadn't replaced my laptop yet. Uh, and I couldn't run anything smarter than Oblivion on that laptop. Um, and, uh, yeah, graduated to Skyrim eventually. And just the thing that ultimately struck me, I guess, was just how... I don't think I need to include the caveat that I love these games. I love these games. But how poor a substitute, how just empty a substitute it was for the collective collaborative work of world making that is playing a tabletop RPG together, like really playing it together with a group of people who are good at making a world together, you know? Um, and it just, it sucked. Like there just, there, there came this point where I just, I, I hated being referred to in the second person. I was just like, <laughs> I was, I, I, I was because, because they can't say your name, right? Because uh, for however smart they're, because they decided in Skyrim to pivot away from text-based character dialogue and they did it all, you know, uh, audio, they can't say your name. Um, and it was just, if anything, it ended up contributing to the feeling that I was the only living being for miles. Like, even in the 14 square miles or so, or however many it is of Skyrim, I think it's 14, um, I, I felt like the only living person among these sort of husks of, um, of what I really wanted, which was, you know my my friend mark inventing voices for his npcs you know and, and that was what i wanted and uh and so it just it struck me as kind of poetically perfect that the capital of skyrim is solitude and um 
I, uh, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot just over the last couple of weeks and today, because we've got our first, where I'm at, we got our first big snowstorm, like real snowstorm, uh, today. And, uh, I was thinking about it again. It's just like, man, it's just hold up by yourself in this empty white waste. Man, there's, that's the, that's the mental health part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We did it, but sorry. So yeah, sorry. That kind of went a, went a little longer than I thought it was going to be, but that's kind of where I was at as I was trying to put that together and just figure out like what, what pinpoint exactly what it was that I was missing that I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't give to myself, you know? Well, I mean, one of the things that I think has been the story for a lot of us this year, you know, both people that are long you know, term gamers and people that are new to games is trying to see ways in which gaming can combat isolation, ways in which it can function as substitutes for certain kinds of experiences, uh, give us a sense of control over our lives. And I think the irony of this, right, is that, and I don't think you're the only one with this experience at all, Nate. I, I know I've felt it in different ways that that same thing that gives you maybe a sense of control, a sense of substitution, a sense that like, oh, okay, I'm getting this thing that I need might also just reverse around and become this thing that reminds you, no, this is not the same thing. Like this is, you know, this is not me being talked to by a friend. I, the NPCs are not my friends. Even the, this, you know, character within, this NPC within Skyrim that I married is not my friend. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, like... I've got this companion that follows me around whose personality, even if it's the most complex AI is still like not even 2d, like 1.5. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's great that you say that because this was actually the point, the point where I started really feeling this actually, it was while I was doing the, um, Oh crap. It's escaping me now. The one where you're a vampire hunter. Um, the the extra deal it's like a dlc yeah, yeah yeah the dlc where you're uh and you your companion there is probably unless there's one in the dragonborn dlc that i haven't uh met yet is probably the most complex ai in the game like she can have conversations with you you can share items with her that she'll use and like use correctly she can do her own alchemy and her own smithing and all this different stuff. And yeah, I was just like that actually sol uh, excuse me, solidified the loneliness. It was just like, Oh wow. This is the very best this game can do. And it just does not cut it, you know, you know, without maybe getting too much into a digression, but maybe just kind of nodding towards something. It's worth noting that like researchers that work on AI, to put this nicely they don't really take the quote-unquote ai in game seriously in fact they don't usually call it ai right they're algorithm you know algorithmic routines that sort of resemble ai but really they don't have that kind of learning processes or sort of neural network routines that you usually think of as like the cutting edge and ai research and the like they're relatively static and the only reason i bring this up is because you know, we're talking about these substitutes. They're not substitutes for people because actually these aren't even trying to be people. And in fact, in my experience, at least, the characters that I form the greatest attachment to in games are the least AI-driven characters in the sort of simplistic sense and most like scripted characters that you're seeing in cutscenes or something. 
because most games have the energy, the ability to do something like that in a way that they can't. In contrast, though, like it's worth noting that a lot of the things that we think of as AI that are like natural language processing, right? Like chat things that resemble human beings often were made with the idea of being having a therapeutic purpose. And, you know, in a moment where I'm even thinking about like, you know, my therapist, uh, who I often talk to just sort of driving around in my car because it's the only privacy I can get uh, in a sort of crowded house at the moment. Uh, you know, constantly insist on like, let's try to get on FaceTime so I can see your face, right? Because it adds that dimension of like feeling like we're talking to a person and not just an NPC. And I think, you know, that there are these moments where you sort of bounce off of a game's characters in a way that does just kind of leave you lonely. Like, oh, I, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have said this to this character. I wish this character would have said that to me. It's funny that like, even in, um, I, I've had a few conversations where, you know, we're, I'm talking to friends on zoom or, or, um, over chat or whatever. And, um, it's a weird thing. Like, I feel like I constantly have to say, um, it's not as good. And you're absolutely right about that. And then I have to keep like qualifying it as, well, it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. And I think maybe that's just me trying to survive or something. I don't know. Um, but like, it is this, we, it's a weird it makes it, it sometimes it's even worse though that it's better than nothing <laughs> in a way because it's just like this weird flat approximation you get just enough to like in a way like notice that you don't have it you know but this um, is also where multiplayer games come in right and i'm not mm -hmm. a big multiplayer you know player uh gamer to be quite honest but this is what this kind of function that's for me like us chatting about games and sort of like playing games together and occasionally maybe we play games together and that like does have something like a substitute effect for like hanging out with friends at the bar but it, it, you know it's not quite the same it's virtual but it's still maybe more than hanging out with like npc number 322 in skyrim <laughs> and for the record i would say that um roll 20 did eventually really work for us like really well like yeah and 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 we really got back in it. and a, a large part of that was because our gm is amazing and really took the time to dig into the guts of roll 20 as far as you can with a free version and 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 make something believable and and cool in it and so we kind of owe a lot to him in that regard i think but um but yeah it, i i'm totally with you there roger that it, it's it's there's this common feeling that i'd say i even have had um when i've been playing among us with colleagues now we we played the other day um oh yeah but yeah, and, and that was fine I, I wasn't sitting there like you know pining away and, and crying but um we, we did i yeah you were <laughs> i did i mean i cried i yeah, cried you because were, I, you were I was bad at being the imposter um and i really <laughs> wanted to be good at it but uh no, but like uh, uh, me and some colleagues played uh, Among Us to celebrate a friend's birthday recently. And it was cool. I mean, it was fun and I enjoyed it. And, um, you know, uh, we all got together and complained about department politics and everything. And, it was, you know, the th stuff you do um, like you do at the bar. But it did have that feeling of like, <clears throat> like this is this is this is close. This is something we're doing something and I can hear you and I can imagine your face and I can, I can 
think about what your what your expressions what you used to do with your hands when you would tell a story like that like i can see it all in my head but um i'm just a little thumb man right now you know <laughs> like, i don't even have hands like you don't even have hands i don't have hands <laughs> that's sad that's it is sad. it's the sad cast yeah. <laughs> i do want to say i do want to say though it's a, like you know, I guess, you know, making an argument, I think we were sort of like discussing the way in which NPCs and playing a game can't substitute for like human company. But on the other hand, there are different kinds of satisfaction that you get out of their narratives, out of their gameplay mechanics, whether it's like getting into a flow state that helps you forget about anxiety or helps alleviate anxiety, or it's uh, just like sinking into like a Yakuza story or um, any number of things like puzzling around or puzzling through a hitman level like there are certain kinds of pleasures that are available there that i think are therapeutic and you know i'll just say and i won't go into too much detail just because i wrote about it for the site but you know there are also moments where like a game can trigger something in you and help you work through something that you didn't even necessarily know you needed to work through so in my case it was like my mother died very suddenly a few years back in 2016 uh it was 2017 um time flies uh but you know it was like one of those things where it was sudden enough that i really didn't have a chance to process it or think about it i kind of just dived back into work and what i didn't realize i was doing in order to avoid processing it was i was avoiding any sort of reference to death outside of like really sort of delimited things like i play a first place person shooter or something like that but nothing where that took death seriously even with my reading which as an English professor is kind of hard to do, but I managed. Um, I managed without even realizing I was doing it. And uh, then I encountered What Remains of Edith Finch, not knowing very much about it, except that it was something like a walking simulator, but mechanically complex or something, which I think is accurate enough. Uh, but it's also just a game about like experiencing death over and over again in this family uh, and these kind of humorous but serious vignettes in which you have a character, for example, who has holed up in a bunker and, you know, thinks that maybe an atomic war has happened. So they just hold up into a bunker and don't come out for years when they do, they die. Or another character who dies working at a cannery, uh, but when you're playing their version or when you're playing their episode, they've invented this fantasy land named after themselves. Uh, the name is Lewis and the place is Lewistopia in which they're like, you know, basically they meet a prince or a princess and you kind of go in through this kind of like fantasy land of theirs. But of course you die sort of sliced up in the cannery. Uh, oh. Yeah, but there's like, it's a moving quality. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it's not even hopeful necessarily. It has a note of hope towards the end, but it was the first place where I really like allowed myself to experience like death and experience it close to that. And I, I like cried a number of times in ways that didn't even feel like they were like motivated and didn't like it made me think about my mother in ways that i hadn't been willing to do i just had been not thinking about my mother and you know i'm somebody that the last memories i have of my mother are her screaming in pain before she got morphine mm. um and i i still have those sounds in my head and they're some of the most terrifying things i think i'll ever experience uh and i couldn't think of anything else without thinking of those in regards to my mom and this game allowed me to sort of like break past that and break through that and i think it because it took a sideways approach to death 
right? Like it had some humor, but it also required me to do something with my hands. It sort of locked me in a place that I had to experience and witness death, but at the same time, it immersed me in a way that was playful, in the best sense of that term. Um, and so it made me remember something that I hadn't remembered for a long time, which is that the first thing that happened, uh, hopefully my family won't mind me saying this, after my mother passed away, she was in our house, we had hospice at home, um, and my sister you know, and I were taking turns watching after her, and my sister was on her watch and she passed away, stopped breathing. And uh, 30 minutes later, we were just sort of making jokes. And these are the types of jokes, morbid jokes that my mother would have appreciated and probably would have made herself and then made fun of us for making as well. Uh, but I didn't remember that, right? Like there was some, I just like boxed up all of these things and like put them in a corner. And I think that that's one thing games can do. And I don't know if a lot of games do it, but I know there are games like Night in the Woods, which is a game with an asterisk next to it because of the sexual violence or whatever it's, creators has engaged in and don't want to shadow or you know hide that uh but games like night in the woods games like what remains of Edith Finch or gone home or these games that make you play difficult experiences and in the act of play it's not a magic circle it's not like some place where you're immune from things instead it's more like it's like being displaced into what you've been trying to avoid or into what we often try to avoid. Um, I don't know if I can come up with a better way of saying that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, there's this part, there's a part of the game where you're getting ready for a party and you're looking in a mirror and you don't have a dialogue option for positive self-talk. You have to criticize yourself. And you can pick what things you want to be mean to yourself about, but you have to do it. If you want to keep playing, or you could turn the game off, I guess it would be your other option. And, and that moment really was a thing for me where I was like, I have this deep desire to show compassion to this anthropomorphic cat who, who does, you know, I don't want to minimize May Borowski's character. She's a, just something. She's such a great video game character. But I really wanted to be kind to this talking cat. And it was this little, this little moment where I was like, well, why don't I want to be kind to myself that way more? You know, like what, why is it so easy for me to put these, give these feelings to use these emotions in the service of this cartoon animal when it's so hard to do that same thing when I myself am living through the exact scenario and talking to myself in exactly the same way. Um, and, and that's one of those moments from the game and stuck with me for, for a really, a really long time. And I think that it's one of those moments where you do experience like, uh, yeah, that, that, that play just in and of itself can be helpful, but isn't like there are particular kinds of play that are especially conducive to, to changes in the way that you think about, about health and, and, and mental health in particular, I think. I think there's something about like, I don't know, 
I'm just I'm just uh, making up stuff right now. But I think that there's something about um, sort of being an avatar that both um, allows you to be part of the game, but also not um, in the sense of the May character, like this question of like, why do I want to be nice to her and not nice to myself? Right. Like, I think that there's something about the fact that she's not you, right. Like that she's, you're in your own head all the time. And it's so hard to, uh, I, I often think of this myself because this is something that comes up in my meditation practice all the time where people keep saying like, why, why don't you treat yourself like you would treat your best friend? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I try to really get into that. And it, for some reason it's easier just because my friend is separate from me. Yeah. Like is out there and I can see it. As, I can see my friend as an, and a, a thing, an organism that needs care. And I can't see that in myself always. Yeah. So maybe, so. It's, maybe it's not just that it's not you. It's that it's you and not you at the same time. Yeah. Like weird. Yeah. Like in between space where you're caught between like, you and another which by the way like not to get too complex here it's almost like an inversion of melancholy mm. right like melancholy you know in that sort of old psychoanalytic freudian sense is when you like lose somebody so you produce imaginary object replacement or project a replacement of that loss on the somebody and what an avatar is it allows it to be the object that fills that loss except that it's also not just your narcissistic projection it's there's a friction there it's something else and so in a certain sense, like a good gameplay experience is like a good like analytic or therapeutic session. You know, you're going in, you're transferring these things that you've already got with you onto an avatar and letting it sort of work itself out in a scene in front of you. And you do get to treat, treat yourself like another, right? Ideally, like you get to like reflect back on yourself. And, and I will say like, you know, let less listeners think we're sort of insensitive to it. I also just want to acknowledge that we're also like three dudes talking about this. <laughs> um, and that like the sort of luxury of like the therapeutic practice of games, let's say, uh, is, is just that sometimes it's a luxury. The one that more and more people are having access to, which I think is important and good in all kinds of different forms. Um, but, you know, obviously like there are toxic forms of gaming and there are even toxic experiences you can have with gaming. Like I, grapple with depression um and, you know which has only been exacerbated by the pandemic as one could probably imagine and there are moments where like playing a game feels like nothing right like absolutely nothing like i'm doing things that i know should be pleasurable and i'm experiencing just not even pain just or frustration just nothing right um it doesn't matter what the game is uh and and so I think it's also worth noting that like we can acknowledge these are very contingent experiences that can come and can go. There's no like, you can't be like, oh, you know what? No, you can't afford therapy. Don't worry. Just play, I don't know, Dark Souls. Uh, oh, right. No, totally. Uh, totally. And so like we, what we are not saying here is that you can substitute for therapy with gaming. Um, let's saying, gamify therapy let's that'd be great. i tell you That's what <laughs> we said we weren't gonna go down a rabbit hole and you know that i'm one for 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 rabbit rabbit holing just sounds like an unspeakably obscene term 
I'm going to say that I might have to let you go down the rabbit hole yourself. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is only a problem because I'm the one doing the recording. Yes. No, I was just thinking, just really briefly, I ran across um, one of those uh, like legitimate attempts to make an AI therapist the other day. And just in playing, like messing with it, even even playfully, to be like, hmm, I wonder how long it'll take me to break this thing, was really freaky and frightening, and I didn't like it at all. So <laughs> I, I also wonder, though, and this is the last thing I think I really want to contribute to this particular conversation, is I, I wonder if part of the reason that might not work, whereas a game might sometimes work therapeutically, is that lack of expectation that it would be therapy, right? Like you have to come into the game not making the demand that it heal you mm. for any kind of maybe positive change in your mental health to happen. You can't expect it. It has to be, you know, bonus points at the end of the level. <laughs> Achievement unlocked. Achievement unlocked. Mental health. <laughs> oh my God. That's an achievement that, you know, can get striked away in a heartbeat, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I have to go. Yeah, which means me we too. have to wrap up, and I'm sorry for that uh, because I'm enjoying this conversation. No, hey, I here, a, here's I have an, an idea. Eighteen month old. No, I have an idea because eighteen month olds are awesome and way cooler than podcasts. What if a couple weeks from now we have mental health cast part two, where <laughs> we sort of revisit some of these? Because I feel like there's there's a lot more to be said here than just like games. It's there, you know.